1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everybody. My name is Ursula Hackett of the New Books Network, New Books in Public Policy podcast. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Lagina Gauss, author of The Advantage of Disadvantage, Costly Protest and Political Representation for Marginalized Groups, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. Welcome to the show, Regina. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So this is an extraordinary book, which in many ways upended my expectations about which groups are most likely to gain representation from protest. Um, And the central claim in this book is that protests are most effective for disadvantaged groups, which I think our listeners will find very, very interesting. So I wondered if you could just start us off by telling us how did this project come about? What's the origin story for The Advantage of Disadvantage?
0: Yeah, I think it really began with kind of observation, right? I uh, grew up noticing lots of inequality and lots of like conversations around like who wins and who loses and how do we gain better representation for groups who are underrepresented. And a lot of the story was about, you know, when we get public opinion to agree, when we get like kind of more advantage groups to buy in to wanting to invest in other populations. That's when you get things for groups who don't normally get represented. You get more things for the poor. You get more things for, um, well, uh, for racial ethnic minorities and other groups, right? But that wasn't my lived experience. So anecdotally, I saw lots of groups uh, with a lot of agency who were acting on their own behalves and actually kind of winning. And so. I wanted to, I guess when I went into academia, one of my goals was to think about ways that one, we can find ways to gain more representation for these groups, but also acknowledge the things that they're already doing uh, that has been successful in gaining representation. So intuitively, anecdotally, I kind of had this idea that there has to be some ways, some reasons why these groups are winning when a lot of political science research, a lot of politics, talks about these groups in ways that uh, doesn't really provide them a lot of agency and doesn't really fi- provide them um, with a lot of wins politically. So uh, there was this intuition. And then I uh, started this particular project after um, reading uh, Ken Coleman's Outside Lobbying, which is a book about how legislators or how protests um is a game of expanding the conflict by engaging people in a conversation that weren't uh, previously in the conversation. So groups appealing to the public to get legislators to get interested in their their issues. And I thought it was an interesting book, but it didn't uh, pay a lot of attention to the groups that I was really interested in. Um, And so uh, the foundation of that book, the theoretical foundation was a formal theory um, that I was uh, kind of intrigued by because I wanted to, uh, I I think formal theory brings a lot into the conversation about how do we really understand things in kind of logical ways. uh, And uh, it helps for me at least to uncover when we're missing parts of the equation that are really important. So I saw this formal theory and I was like, hey, it's great. But they're missing, like, how does, how do uh, the resources of groups, how do the, uh, how do disadvantaged groups kind of play into this story? Uh, And so, theoretically, it began kind of as improving on a model that already existed to answer this question that was already uh, interested in. Um, And I I mean, my first stab at you doing the formal thought uh, theory wasn't amazing, but uh, it (laughs) had some flaws. But uh, even those flaws, I was like, okay, this says what I thought I was going to say. And then even as I've tried to manipulate it in different ways to prove myself wrong, it's still uh, uh, both theoretically and empirically uh, and and kind of the quantitative methods that I was using uh, still demonstrated the same effect that these groups who are willing to invest in these very risky or costly behaviors actually pay off because they're so costly. They wouldn't have been doing it if they didn't really care about it. And that signal of doing it despite all of the costs uh, demonstrates uh, to elected officials, communicates to them that there is uh, some very invested population that they shouldn't be ignoring and should be trying to represent and appease at least a little bit. And if they were really concerned about representing them and maintaining their uh, positions as elected officials.
2: I'm really looking forward to having a conversation about this idea of costly protest and the kind of signaling that goes on. So I want to kind of probe you on that point. But I just wanted to say um, initially, uh, Regina, that I, as a Brit, I was delighted that you began with, of course, the Boston Tea Party. And um, I was wondering if you could just, I mean, I guess just as an overview thing, could you tell us what forms of collective action are you really interested in? I mean,
0: what forms of protest are you are you focusing on in your in your book? Yeah, I have a very expansive definition of protest. So uh I talk about protests uh and collective action kind of interchangeably because I I include things that we commonly think of as protests like marches and rallies and acts of civil disobedience, but also things that um social movement scholars talk about, and, and when talking about collective action, uh, that signal kind of the same way. So this broader definition of collective action is anytime a group of people engages in a public behavior to express some type of grievance or concern. Uh, so it also includes things like petitioning and letter writing campaigns and, and other things that we may not commonly associate with protests. Uh, But I also, yes, I use that Boston Tea Party example in the beginning of the book, mostly because I think Americans have this idea of kind of good protests and bad protests or like legitimate protests and illegitimate protests. And I talk in the book how that's a lot related to the people who are protesting. But it's also kind of this revisionist history of, you know, the U.S. um, Remember when I first started this book, protest wasn't as popular in the U.S., Uh, And it now is a lot more frequent, but uh, it was a society that was founded by a bunch of violent protests, right? Things that we wouldn't think today were very democratic processes. But um, uh, the Boston Tea Party, uh, I guess, isn't as violent, but lots of property destruction or the Boston Massacre or just a lot of events. The idea of an American Revolution, right, Uh, uh, going up in arms against your government uh, and it's something that in the U.S. Is, is a point of pride, but also when more acts for similar aims or have been conducted throughout history and even more recently are condemned for being you know, anti-American when uh, that's literally kind of the, the foundation of this country. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And I mean, it comes to it comes to some of these questions that I also hope that we're going to get on to about um, at the construction of these these groups that are protesting um, and the things for, for which they are protesting. I mean, I, I, I wonder. So tell tell me then. Um, What is the what is the function of these these signals, signaling devices that you describe? These 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 these, um, costly, protest ambiguous signals. This is the sort of some of the doing a lot of the, the sort of theoretical work, conceptual work within your understanding of how protest works and and, and, and why it works. I mean, so, so tell us, what are those signals actually doing? Um, how do they help you to build your theoretical expectations about the effectiveness of protest in different scenarios with different groups at different times as well?
0: Right, right. So thinking about protest, people protest for a lot of different reasons. They may protest because their friends are doing it. They may protest because they want to address some social issue that's occurring or some local event that's happening. Um, they may be protesting. I remember uh, for a while, we haven't seen these since the, the shutdown, but uh, Black Friday protests against like local merchants and, and, and businesses. So there's a lot of different reasons that people protest but when observing those protests, there's something that I think is very relevant for legislators who are performing performing their jobs as legislators. So, yeah, they want to represent the interests of their people, the, the will of their people. But they also have this strategic or kind of individualistic aim of maintaining their position as legislators. And so if they want to do that, they want to represent the people who have intense preferences that are intense enough where if they're not represented in the way they want it to be, that legislator could face negative repercussion in the next election. So even if event doesn't target legislators or target a specific policy, it can be important for a legislator who's trying to figure out which issues are going to be very critical for my next election, right? So this... Black Friday strike may not be targeting me, but the fact that it's happening in a lot of places or consistently in my district demonstrates that employment practices or the way we think about kind of capitalism uh, is something that's very important for my constituents. So it should dictate the way I vote on policies that are similar, though not directly related to the issues being protested. Right. Mm -hmm. So it serves as a signal of uh, what Issues are really important for my constituents, and how can I get ahead of it in a way uh, that's not going to damage me when I'm trying to to get reelected? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: And of course, we know. I mean, you you make this very clear in the book, um, and I think that it's it's very well established that that legislators in general are much more responsive to particular sorts of interest, um, uh, white interests, um, business interests, elite interests of various sorts, and and not to people of colour and not to low-income groups um, uh, and organisations representing those particular types of interests. So we know that's true generally, and that's obviously an important framing device within your book. Um, So what is it then that's motivating I mean, you're kind of spelling this out now already for us, but just to to sort of just to to round it out for us. I mean, what is it that's motivating legislators to actually respond to the low resource groups as opposed to these other groups that we sort of think of as being very well represented already? Thank you very much.
0: Yeah. So there's a lot of reasons that legislators tend to represent the same types of groups. Right. So if you think about the founding of the U.S., the people who elected elected officials, all but one state limited that those electors, the, the voting population, voting rights to like whitely only males, excuse me. Uh, so the initial foundation of kind of U.S. democracy was this very elite and white and male population who was deciding which legislators are going to represent their interests. And so over time, that's expanded, but that still set a status quo of like, what policies do we think are of the will of the people or the general public? And so as more people have become uh, more participatory in democracy, vote more, uh, volunteer more, engage in elections, the popu- the electors, the elected officials have also changed, but there's still this kind of status quo bias. Um, but another way is that, you know, there's still the fact that most of Congress is still white, male, and elite, right? And so you still have these legislators who, when they're trying to decide which interests should be represented, a lot of time rely on their own experiences. And those experiences tend to be very distinct from people of color, from low-income populations, because they're just not in the same networks. And so when you're trying to influence what these legislators are doing, you have to kind of convince them that what uh, of what needs to be represented beyond of Like what they already know based on their own experiences or based on the people in their own network. So protesters are this kind of communication mechanism of, let me demonstrate to you that you can't ignore me on this particular party at a policy at this particular time, right? And even if a legislator isn't convinced that the policy is actually a good policy, they are convinced that this population who has decided to engage in protest could shift their. Re- participation to electoral participation, to voting behavior, that could damage the legislator. They could also uh, damage the legislator's representation, uh, reputation by continuing to protest in ways that the public starts paying attention, right? The media may start paying attention. Public opinion may be shifting where the legislator now looks like the bad guy for not representing a group who is demanding and making it clear to people that the things that they're asking for should be represented, um, even if they aren't, haven't been represented or may not be substantially represented. So there's some type of uh, protest provides this leverage and this communication strategy uh, that uh, encourages legislators to, to have this strategic representation.
2: That's so interesting. So I'd like to probe now just to think a bit more about that. Um, the sort of mechanisms and, the, and and exactly what's going on with respect to that the pressure that's being applied because one of the things I was thinking was you know this all just sounds really familiar to me in terms of you know the, the, a lot of the dynamics that you describe with respect to the representation of elite interests is something that is of concern in the United States of course but also much more broadly and it has these much much broader um, sort of ramifications but I was wondering whether, you know, we're looking at a ceiling effect here. You know, I mean, these advantaged interests are so well represented, <laughs> so extraordinarily well represented within government already that kind of almost any movement towards the preferences of those who are low income, low resourced, in various different ways disadvantaged, um, that, that that might seem sort of, you know, substantively bigger than it is because you know so any any movement is a win because of the extraordinary power of these vested interests within the within the system the advantage the advantage interest within this system as it stands
0: yeah and i think i'm trying to uh i guess wrap my head around the question there but i think part of it is trying to think about uh how much change is actually occurring from protests is that we're
2: yeah i guess so yeah yeah um just 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 that it, it would be it would be hard to move public policy in certain areas in a more in 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 the the, the direction of the more advantaged in the sense that it's already captured to such a substantial degree that oh, okay that the move that, that there's there's sort of like a there's one way that movement can take place and it's it's the other way
0: yeah okay so part of i think the question is then um maybe the reason we're seeing it disadvantaged groups gaining representation from protests is because advantaged groups can't really win more than they're already winning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Perhaps, right? But if that were the case, then we wouldn't have these consistent findings that, you know, uh, legislators when they vote on on bills are still overwhelmingly representing the interests of the advantaged groups. So it's not like they won and there's no policies being made. They're still making policies consistently to, to still represent uh, more advantaged groups in society, so there is still movement for them to to continue to win, and not other people, right? Mm-hmm. There's nothing to say that legislators. Um, uh, I guess I guess for that to be true, that it would be the case that policy isn't being continuing to be made. And t- any time a policy is being made, there's a decision of who do I want to represent, the higher resource groups or lower resource groups? or uh, I mean, it's not clearly that dichotomous, right? It's not clearly a binary of this group no, or that, sure. but still, right? Um, and so every choice to continue to represent the same group is still a choice.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, right. And so there's a continuous set of choices that are being made It's an iterative game and, and policy yes. maintenance is taking place and distribution yes. is taking place. Okay, so you have this um, fascinating set collection of different sources of data here which i i really find so compelling because you, you know you've got this formal model and you've mentioned the formal modeling that you've admired so much in the work that you're that you read um, but of course there's the centerpiece of, of this book is also a formal model and you've also got all this wonderful survey data you've got all this geo uh, geographical data on protest activity you've got data different time points so there's all these different parts of this kind of that this puzzle that you're putting together in order to try and describe the situations in which protest activity occurs and when it can be effective or not and i just wanted to ask you about your survey because i think the survey is a really interesting one so 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 tell me about how you surveyed legislators it's legislators and legislative staff right that you were surve- yes. surveying and you what did you learn from that exercise and were there things within that survey that really surprised you um or findings that you had that were that that made you think okay what's what on earth is going on here
0: yeah so actually um i think since i started this project so i went to a grad school at the university of michigan and mm-hmm. lots of people there are very much into surveys and so there was advice from the beginning to you know if you want to know how legislators are responding to to protesters go ask them right and i was very reluctant for a really long time because i didn't know how to ask the questions to get the answers that were true and like real answers. Right. Uh, if you ask legislators about their behavior, they're going to tell you the thing that um, makes them look the best, right there. They may not give their true opinions. And so I was a little concerned right. about uh, how, to actually do a survey in ways that I can get more information than I could already get from reading newspapers and looking at press releases and all of these other sources where legislators are telling people how they feel about different issues and responses to protesters in particular. So what I did, I did a survey and included a bunch of questions that didn't exactly ask my question. I didn't ask them, Wait, which groups do you respond to most, right? Uh, but I did ask them. Deep. Yeah, <laughs> I did ask them things like, "Tell me about protests events that you know are memorable to you. Like, which events are memorable to be memorable to you? Mm-hmm. Um, tell me how you responded to those events. Do you think they ever influenced your decision making? And and lots of open-ended questions about like how did they influence your decision making? Um, and then I included questions that were um, asking them to think about different groups to engage in protests, and which ones do you think encounter more difficulty in protest? So as you mentioned, I focus a lot in the book on um, race and ethnicity and income when thinking about uh, the the difficulty gr- groups have, the cost groups are, are having to face when they go protests. And so when I asked them which groups face more difficulty, they told me that, they did think that black groups face more difficulty than white groups. They told me that lower income groups face more difficulty than middle income groups and higher income groups. Um, but they didn't say that, you know, gender mattered as much when trying to protest or age, which I was a little surprised about age, but I, I guess even mm-hmm. the, the sociology literature goes back and forth about how that might matter depending on the, the types of events. Uh, so I was, that was one of my surprises, right? That, they actually talk about the groups that I thought were the ones that face differences in protest uh, costs. Right. Um, And didn't talk about differences in protest costs for other groups. And I was like, okay, great. Maybe there's something to this survey. I guess that wasn't the first thing I looked at, but that was a very surprising to me Um, and kind of going back on, on how I got the survey data. So I, um, Put this survey together and I sent it to the offices of legislators at the state, federal, and local levels. Because while most of my um, empirical analyses are for um, federal legislators in in US Congress, I was also, the the theory applies more more broadly to legislators in general. So I wanted to get uh, some insights about whether it also fits uh, at these other legislative offices. Um, so I sent lots of emails, I want to say upwards of like two, three, four hundred. I can't remember. So lots <laughs> of emails <laughs> and got 26 responses back, which, you know, I wasn't that surprised. Um, uh, most of them were of people who worked in legislators, staff offices, right? So um, some chiefs of staff, some... Uh, intern. So most of them worked for legislators, weren't legislators themselves. Um, And then I got a couple like city council members uh, who responded. uh, And and I focused on different geographic areas throughout the US to kind of get some regional differences. And uh, so so then when I saw like, oh, it's only like 24, 25 people, what will I get here? Um, I started looking at their open-ended responses and was very excited at kind of the stuff they were saying. Right, um, there were a few legislators that said like, "Protest never influences my behavior," but then they'll say stuff like, "I protested, and there was this one group who was really getting on my nerves," and I was just like, "Okay, let me just represent them on this issue, and then they'll like stop bothering me." Right? Those aren't mm-hmm. <laughs> those aren't direct quotes, and you know, in the book, I do talk about places where it's like, um, revealed some uh, indirect support for my theory. Uh, but I was kind of surprised at how much of their responses were consistent with the assumptions that were uh, necessary for my, my argument to be correct, right. Um, mm-hmm. And how forthcoming they were in just saying that, like, yeah, like, protest matters, I'm aware of them. Sometimes I don't want to, but I do represent them. And there were some who said that I just never represent groups who protest and and had reasons for that. Uh, But even still, just, um, you know, 26 responses and uh, pretty consistent results uh, aligning with my theory. And I don't think it's, you know, generalizable in any way. But the purpose there was just to say, like, are there at least some legislators who think in the ways that my theory said they should? Mm. And looking at the legislators I had, the majority of them were. So that was, yeah, it's kind of exciting because I that went into it. <laughs> yeah, I went into it not expecting to find what I wanted and still planning to to write up whatever I found. And, and yeah, it was better mm. than I thought.
2: Mm. I mean, put such a human face on the I mean it really enriches it enriches the writing. I think it's really it's 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 characterful, it's it's colourful, it's kind of it 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 brings the humans alive in all of this. I I always think it's really so compelling to hear directly from the horse's mouth, from the from the legislators, from the staff members who are making these calculations and who you know who are populating your this 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 strategic landscape that you're describing. So I mean I, I find that very compelling and I, I I mean I you know my own research I, I spent a lot of time you know uh, talking about very different sorts of politics but the, the, the people that are keenest to speak to me tend to be the white republican men and so yeah. I, um, I spend a lot of time kind of trying to balance things up and, and thinking a lot about the partisan dimensions of some of the conversations mm. now I understand that most of you talk to democrats is that right
0: yeah i didn't get really many republicans at some point it just got to be convenient samples i would just ask people like thanks for participating in my survey don't you want to tell me other people will take this too because you know i'm trying to get more responses so uh, like i said not generalizable but um definitely turned out to be one of my favorite chapters
2: do you think that i mean you know how uh, it's
0: a kind of a silly thing
2: in some ways to ask you to speculate about this but i'm just interested in, in if you have any thoughts about this if you had spoke if you had spoken to more republicans i mean do you think that your findings would have been substantially different um from those that you do find in terms of the kind of things that are people saying about protests and about their their attitudes towards it and their cap their strategic calculus or, or do you think that some of the things that you describe are you know apply broadly across both groups of legislators whether we're talking about republicans or democrats
0: Yeah, I think most of the things I talk about in that chapter, um, like, do you think protests, like, can you describe any protests that, you know, while you were in your legislative capacity influenced you or any way or, right, Republicans, especially more recently, but I think in in general, have always faced protests as well. Um, They may get talked about differently, but their protest is definitely a strategy of conservatives as much as it is among liberals in the United States. Um, where I think results will probably be different would be on the difficulties people face when protesting. I think conservatives are just a little less, um, likely to say that, uh, there are inequalities in the ways, especially based on the, the social groups that I'm talking about. And so Mm. I'm not sure, um, that would have been a consistent finding among Republicans Mm. in the same way it was among Democrats.
2: And I guess there's that countervailing consideration for legislators as well, which I think you I I I, I think you do highlight this in the book as well uh, at various points. And that's just that this um one of the rather chilling findings that the the very presence of a person of colour within a protest activity um is can decrease the general public's support for the cause for which those protesters are protesting um, and um, wondering whether legislators, I mean, do, I don't know whether you asked by this directly, so maybe it's an unfair question, but I mean, do legislators take that into account? Like, you know, Oh, right. Okay. So this is the effect that, that, that might, it might have on my constituents better not support them uh, this particular protest because, you know, I can, I can see this potentially angering my constituents, you know, back in my district.
0: Yeah, okay. So I think you were asking about it in terms of whether they were going to respond. Um but even thinking about that general finding, right? I think across the ide- ideological spectrum, legislators are very aware of how much race and ethnicity is as- is associated with uh perceptions of policies, right? So, um in the conclusion of my book, which I was actually um so I talk about the Boston Massacre and how um Uh, At the Boston Massacre, uh, Crispus Attucks was there, right? So the Boston Massacre was this event. There were some um, frustrations with uh, uh, British soldiers who were trying to enforce the King's Tax. Uh, American colonists weren't happy about it. And so they kind of assaulted or or, um, attacked uh, the British soldiers. And so the soldiers opened fire and killed a bunch of people. One of those people was Crispus Attucks, who was of um, indigenous and Black descent. And became a very big focus on the soldiers' defense of their actions because um, the lawyers talked about how, uh, you know, why wouldn't the soldiers be upset? Look at this very, you know, aggressive looking male, this black man who was at the event. They had every reason to be upset. And you, and you think about kind of policies today or reactions to um different like violent events and there's a lot of that same scapegoating right if it weren't for this like aggressive like black man being present, um uh which in- it like it, it um invoked a lot of fear into the police officers right then um, then perhaps this wouldn't have been ha- happening, or I guess a better way of saying, it, of course, the police officers were afraid because you know black men are, are more violent or whatever. And we're talking about different policies, right? The people talk about the Willie Horton campaign in the 1980s that was used to um, in, in, enforce um, or decrease support for Democratic candidates for perceiving them to be um, weak on crime because they were allowing this um, black man. Um, out on a furlough and during that, like ended up committing this violent crime. So there's lots of instances, but also it's not just something that conservatives do. Democrats also have used these kind of racialized tropes to defend or um, oppose certain policies. Right. And so, yeah, there's definitely that uh, that type of politicking going on. Um, and so, the concern that like constituents would find out that a legislator is supporting a group uh, is definitely something that legislators must consider when they're deciding like who to represent. And so, there is this game of can I represent this group in a way that demonstrates to them that I'm doing something for them, but also doesn't anger my constituents? And it's easier to do that if other constituents in the district aren't. Um, don't have as strong opinions about the issue, right And if their opinions aren't as strong, even if they're in opposition to what uh, uh, like black protesters want, uh, legislators can still represent the black protesters and not receive kind of negative repercussions from other people who aren't on the same type of uh, on the same side of the policy. But when um, I guess the public is more aware and opposed and has similarly intense preferences, uh i do talk about how uh that is a time where representation for marginalized groups may be less likely right part of this story is that there's this uh inequality among protesters and their issue salience and and when they're protesting they tend to be um have more salience for an issue it's more important for them than it is for other groups and even if it's important for other groups because uh these marginalized protesters, low, low resource protesters are willing to protest for this issue, that may be the only issue that will determine how they vote in the next election or participate in the next election. Whereas for other groups, um, it may be one of many issues they care about, but it may not be the primary issue that's going to motivate their behavior. So a legislator may choose, okay, I'm going to ignore this one issue, vote for the other group. But on these other things, I'll give you the representation that you want. And hopefully that's enough because uh, those other issues may be more important or as important um, than this one particular issue that they may oppose.
1: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
2: Right. Yeah. So, I mean, there's all these things that are, that are, I mean, clearly this is a very complex strategic calculus. It's something that varies, you know, in terms of different legislatures and different districts. They just have different, there, there are different, you know, there's a different calculus in each of those, but also it, on different issues as well. These things can be uh, uh, more or less costly, more or less salient, um, uh, Each of these things is sort of playing into that decision making on the part of the legislator, and I'm just I'm I'm sort of wondering on the part of the um, in terms of the 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 uh, finding that I mean, well, I suppose one other thing that I would just throw into the mix, which you haven't mentioned, which I was kind of thinking about and thinking, okay, so does where does that kind of fit in with this? all, all, all of these different uh, calculations that are being made. I mean, there's clearly it's a strategic calculus, it's a tactical thing, it's an iterative thing. but There's also the question of the justness of the cause, you know, just the, you know, just the 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 power of the of the cause, of the of the frame of the, but but also of the of the, the the meaning of what what is of the of the of the actions. And I was just kind of wondering about that in relation, in particular, to the 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 finding you had that the margin of victory for a particular legislator. Um, their re-election margin was actually not related to their likelihood of supporting the protest or not. And I was kind of thinking, what is going on there? I mean, is that... So that's not like a a counterpoint to the idea that re-election is important, because we we know that re-election is very important, but I'm just wondering, does this suggest that the justness of the cause is playing into that calculus as well at that point? I just wondered, I mean, this is a very incuit set of ideas, but yeah. do you have any reflections on that, on that thought?
0: Yeah, there's two things to come to mind. First is, I'm glad you bring this up, because a lot of the focus has kind of been on this strategic representation or this, like, legislator who is reluctantly supporting these groups, right? Mm. And that's not always the case, right? There are definitely a lot of legislators out there who want to represent these constituents who aren't typically represented in politics, and they're passion is to represent these groups, and they were doing it before protests, or protest happened, and they were convinced by the issue. And now that's kind of something uh, that they're really intent on representing, right. And so the purpose the the point of this book is I wanted to kind of look at the more Reluctant legislators to see what motivated them, unless the ones who kind of were already passionate about representing these interests or convinced to become passionate about it. So the focus on these roll call votes is kind of the strategic representation story. So the findings may have been different, or. Um, the types of things I guess may have, I talk about may have been different if I were talking about legislators co-sponsoring legislation or uh, making public speeches and all of these other types of ve- behaviors that show a more commitment to the issue than a simple roll call sure. vote right um, so uh, in that sense the the data itself uh uh, is less capable of saying, did they support this issue because they really cared about it or did they support it because they were reluctantly re- responding to protesters? Fair enough. But um, the thing you bring up about the the margin of victory, right? So I looked at... Um, so part of this story is this re-election incentive that legislators are very concerned about re-election and want to do everything they can um, to make sure that they don't lose. And so a lot of... Um, literature on electoral politics and legislative behaviors talks about, uh, kind of a legislator's sense of how likely they are to be, um, to not win a ele- re-election, And so one indicator could be, well, how much did you win the previous election? Was it a, a landslide or did you kind of barely eke out the competition? Right. Um, and so I wanted to kind of look at this objective measure of, is it the case that legislators who barely won the previous election are the ones who are more likely to be responsive to these um, costly protesters who are showing that they have these salient interests uh, because they're, you know, more likely to want to respond to the people who, um, could cost them a re-election, right? It only takes a, a a fewer number of people to affect their re-election, so they're trying to pay attention to as many people as possible. But there's also this part of the literature that says that these re-election concerns could be objective, they could be based on real like numbers and figures or it can be subjective. It could be hmm. about legislators intuition or um uh, concerns valid or not about whether they're going to run the next election so it could be you know this legislator who won by a landslide is very cautious and very much paying to every paying attention to every public opinion poll every protest everything they can to try to figure out um which issues that they need to be paying attention to or how they should vote on legislation um by looking at every tea leaf they can right and so what i find is that you know these objective measures don't seem to matter. It seems like all legislators have some baseline concern about their reelection because they're, um, de- regardless of how well they did in the past election, they all seem to be more responsive to costly protesters than less costly protesters. Mm. Uh, so I do, right? I do. Um, I, I guess respect kind of the these objective concerns, but I also think that you know. Um, there have definitely been times when legislators who felt pretty confident in their reelection lost because of some Mm -hmm. group that didn't, you know, Mm -hmm. um, they weren't Mm -hmm. previously paying attention to. And so I talk about in the book, right. The, uh, the example of uh, Representative Clay, sure. who I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> my my Siri likes to, to to chime in sometimes. So Representative Clay, who not only had been representing his district for decades, but his father had also represented that district, but um, he loses to Corey Bush, who was a protester in the Ferguson protests, right? So she challenges him in the first election and loses, but in the next election actually succeeds in in challenging his reelection, right? And actually loses by a landslide the first time that she challenges a reelection. Right. So he might've objectively had some, like, not a lot of concerns about kind of some, mm. some third party coming in and challenging a reelection, some unknown group, um, the immobilized by protests and, and putting forth a candidate and, and ousting him. Um, but subjectively, he should have been concerned, or I guess in hindsight, he should have been concerned. I don't know if he legitimately was or we not, but, um, those objective measures right, aren't really useful when you do know or have these uh, anecdotal stories, at least of times when, when legislators were pretty confident and, and still didn't win because they weren't really paying attention uh, to what was going on among their constituents? Mm.
2: That makes so much sense. I mean, I think it comes back also to the, the points that we make over and over again. Just about you know, this is about motiv- legislators' motivations for action, mm-hmm. and it's about those the human, the human face, that like human beings making these decisions, making these strategic calculus, uh, the, the, making this strict strategic calculus, and trying to sort of figure it all out. And I so talking of how you figure these things out. I mean, these things have obviously changed substantially over t- over the course of time that your book ranges over which you sort of you have a lot of stuff um on on the 1990s of course and you go right up to date um you've got a lot of really interesting things since 2012 but uh the digital revolution right and you i know you have a whole yeah. you have a whole, have a whole chapter about this so so tell our listeners what is it that so how did digital technology alter this kind of strategic landscape if at all for legislators What 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 did it change and how did it change it
0: yeah actually it changed a lot and then didn't change a lot at the same time right so um so yeah the first set of data i look at are in the 90s when like the internet wasn't really a thing like people had it um i found this one statistic that said that like most people only got one email a day right and you know just being on this right now i've probably gotten like five or six right like (laughs) five or six urgent ones and and who knows how many spam emails i've gotten in the last what? 30, 40 minutes. Um, and so like the internet just wasn't as present. But then with the internet and the different ways that it's kind of evolved over time, um, especially with kind of social media and access to information and all of these things, right? The internet really changes the dynamics in how people um, become aware of policies, but also how they're able to engage with other people to both understand how policies are affecting them. And understand how to mobilize for policy. So the internet chose both changes the way people protest, but also the way people inform themselves and form community in ways that facilitate protests and, uh, and gain information, uh, distribute information. So in this kind of that chapter, I wanted to look at how does the internet change in-person protests? How does it change the online protest uni- universe and the ways that outside publics, including legislators, are able to figure out like what those protests mean. Um, and then also wanting to compare, you know, online protests to, to in-person protests, because I think it was another test of this theory of costly protests and that um, participating in a protest on the internet, right? Engaging in a hashtag, changing your pro- pro- profile picture, um, blackout days or whatever, right? And, and in many forms that protests kind of materialize on the internet, Um, is a lot less costly than participating in a protest in person, right? You can participate in an online protest on your computer while engaging in a conversation or watching TV or doing a number of other things. So it's not a time commitment, your investment in understanding what the real issue is. It doesn't have to be that high. You see a friend using a hashtag and you use it too, whether you understand the hashtag or not, right? Whereas in person, it usually takes you physically relocating to another place, Um, more information about like when the activity is supposed to happen, the time that it's supposed to happen, a more commitment to actually participating. And because of those, usually more information about what the issue is and, and how it relates to you. And so I do find here that you know because of those differences in and costs the in-person protests are just much more effective in gaining legislative support than online ones. Um but even in the online and off in kind of in-person universe of protests um there're still these disparities these there are these differences in costs that affect low-income protesters and racial ethnic minorities more than higher income protesters, right? So the fact that we still live in kind of these Uh, segregated societies. So physically, but also like the communities we access when we go on the internet um, means that um, the people who tend to be underrepresented in politics are still the ones who are in different networks than legislators. So legislators are less informed about their experiences because they have to be more active in gaining those insights um, and and the average legislator there, right? So not all legislators, but the average legislator. Uh, And so protests Uh, is still more costly for low resource groups and high resource groups. The one thing that does change a lot, though, is um, the role of formal interest groups. So initially, I I think of them as this resource that can be very uh, mobilizing for participants. Right. So if there's some group who is very practice like the ACLU and like getting people informed about what the issues are, telling them who's responsible for the issue, even maybe actively mobilizing them, getting them out to certain locations, right? That's a resource that's like very critical for participation, um, whereas, the absence of an organization like that usually demonstrates that people care enough to figure out those things on their own in order to protest, mm-hmm. right? So it's a, a big a better indicator of the people themselves having a high concern about an issue. But in the online world, um, protests are just it whether protests becomes popular or viral or just like something that people are aware of um, is a very much more or a much murkier kind of situation right um, uh, lots of research on like online activism shows that a lot of events when they become viral or get a lot of attention do so because of um, kind of these early influencers these like people in these social on these online settings who have lots of friends and post a lot and so once they get involved early um, and enough of them get involved early, that's when an event becomes viral, right? And so you don't know whether like something is popular because it's really important to people or it's popular because um, just a lot of people are um, aware of it because of their friends are talking about it, right? Um, so I, I, I use the example in the book of the um, ALS Ice Bucket Challenge mm-hmm. in 2012, right? So mm-hmm. lots of yeah, people- Yeah, big over as well. Yeah, lots of people uh-huh. in their back uh, backyards pouring buckets of ice on them in support of ALS and they're using the ALS challenge hashtag. Right. Um, but how many of those people were very concerned about the issue versus very excited to be in this like viral thing where all of their friends were participating in. Um, and you look at the fact that like they've tried to replicate that a couple times and it just hasn't been possible. Right. People just didn't pay attention to it as much as they did the first time. Um, and i don't think the the message there is that the issue became more or less popular it just got fewer really like um active internet users, users involved in it and so that was a difference so formal interest groups become this very valuable resource of uh, legitimacy for a lot of events on online spaces because they can demonstrate that hey this event happened and i can tell you that it is important because like I'm dedicating my resources to it. So they're not the ones necessarily motivating or mobilizing the events, but they are providing legitimacy by saying that I'm putting resources behind this and I can show you that like, I can remobilize this group uh, later if I want to, because I have Mm -hmm. the capacity to kind of get people involved again. And so they become a more, um, uh, less a sign of uh, issue salience and more a sign of kind of commitment to a cause
1: mhm
2: mhm and I, yeah so i wanted to um come back just circle back again to this point about um commitment and and costly activity on behalf of a particular cause and i it comes back to the i guess it comes it's just the absolute centerpiece of this project which is the the distinction between low resource and high resource groups and and what that activity protest activity by each of these different group members of these different groups represents about a particular group's cons- uh, commitment to a to a to a cause, and what well, that signals to legislators, and I, I'm wondering about kind of participation costs for higher in- resource individuals as well. Not, I mean, of course, not. Evenly distributed across those groups necessarily. I'm thinking people with childcare costs as being ones with, with particularly high um, participation costs, at least in, for in-person protests and things. But I'm thinking about employed people who can't take time off, um, and people in particular who are high income, like high earners, for whom presumably it would be it would just you'd, there's more to lose, right? If you if you if if you lose your job, or if you're or if you're kind of incarcerated or you're involved in some vi- violent activity potentially um you've lost you've, you've just lost more than 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 in, in terms of lost income than you would if you were not an employed person um or kind of um just sort of thinking that a high resource individual just kind of has more resources to lose because they're a high resource individual i mean is that a really really silly thing to say um Presumably this is something that is absolutely central to your thinking. So, so can you sort of how do you respond to that that particular perspective? I mean, um, it seems that there are there are I can see that there are costs, there are considerable costs, and there are very particular costs that are attend attend low resource groups participating in pro-activity. But I suppose in absolute terms, Perhaps also, relative, I don't know, I don't know that, that there are there are huge costs that that come from simply just by virtue of being a high resource individual, however we define high resource, you know, um, yeah. so 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 how do you how do you respond to that particular um, sort of thought?
0: Yeah, I think in absolute terms. Protests has costs for anyone who participates, right? Either time costs, financial costs, like there are always costs to protesting. And so what I'm looking at more is the relative costs, right? And so, yeah, so a high resource group. So let's talk about like high income earners, right? So a protest may mean that they're losing more money if they lose their job, but relative to the costs of a low income earner, their costs aren't as usually as high, right? So what I mean there is a high resource earner, earner um, usually, but not always, right? The ability to get another job if they lose their job is a lot higher, right? A low True. income earner tends to um, have less education, less social capital, less whatever. Um, that makes it, if they lose their job, the ability to get a new one is just going to be a lot harder, right? So the the time from losing their job to getting another one is higher for a low income earner. They also tend to have less funds available to continue to afford rent or mortgage or or other things, whereas a high income earner tends right. to have at least some social, some financial safety net um, to protect them if they're not able um, to maintain their job. Um, also, right, one thing um, that gets talked a lot, uh, talked about a lot is the possibility of arrest and what results from that. So, um uh let's think about race right so the the fact that police are more likely to be present at a protest if it's a person mm. of color than if it's a, a white person right arrest rates are tend to be higher for low income and people of color than high resource groups of uh regardless of their race or income level which means that if a low resource group was arrested at a protest which likely to have that is a lot higher the ability mm. to pay for um bail to get them out of jail is a lot less likely for a low income earner than a high income earner, which means, you know, get arrested, can't pay bail, stuck in jail unless they drop their charges, which then results in the loss of income, maybe mm-hmm. a loss of a job, whereas all of those downside effects are just less likely for a high income earner. So yes, the costs in, in um, absolute terms are high for high resource groups, but in relative terms, a lot lower than
2: for, than for um, low resource groups that makes a lot of sense to me and i mean i think that even if even if there were some sort of amorphous reputational risk to someone who is a mover and shaker in society mm-hmm. <laughs> that's not that is outweighed by those consider- the precisely the considerations that you described there that just the very real risk of, of a violent response and a response that is going to lead to really severe consequences for p- people who are who are low resource or in other ways, Disadvantage to use the terminology that you're using in this book i mean i think um one thing i was thinking throughout this whole i mean i mentioned the, the boston tea party at the beginning and i love that and 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 it's something that the sort of revolutionary protest activity is sort of part of this book um but i just wondered um about the applicability of your findings elsewhere because a lot of the dynamics that you're describing here seem to me to be universal findings also psychological strategic cal- calculus um, that we might expect to apply in other places around the world. And I wondered whether you see your findings as being more broadly generalizable beyond the United States. Um, I, I mean, I'm thinking about some of the British protest activity we've seen. We've certainly had our own Black Lives Matter, um, our own sort of reckoning with slavery and with empire. We've had our own reckoning with a variety of protest activity, some of which I think, you know, we see the connections between that uh, here and in the United States. But 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 more broadly, I mean, I, I just wondered, um, do you see your work as being primarily a work of American politics and speaking to an American Context, um, or, or do you see there there as being lessons that we can learn more broadly, comparatively, maybe not just not just in Britain but around the world, uh, for our understanding of legislator motivations and protest and and who gets what when where how, why?
0: Yeah, I think in general, I created a theory as a general theory of kind of electoral politics and responding and responding to groups of different resource capacity, right? And I talk about in my theoretical chapter. Um, how this, I apply it to the U S context and race and ethnic politics and like, uh, economic inequality, um, mostly because, you know, those are the areas like I have more expertise in and less confident to give particular ac- uh, applications, uh, beyond the U S context. But I do talk about how I might expect this theory to apply or maybe not apply so much based on both the, um, electoral dynamics, but also the the re, the differently resourced groups that you might consider right so you did mention, mention like black lives matter and um in the uk but i <laughs> first think there's a particular history of like race and and like black politics in the us compared to yes. other contexts and mm-hmm. so not saying that it's not relevant i just don't have as much confidence or uh, expertise in being able to decide like How big are the differences in resources? What types of resources matter um, for other locations, Um, even if I'm talking about other like, uh, like black groups and other societies, right? Um, For the like, generally, I do think, you know, the black white resource dichotomy exists pretty consistently, um, no matter where you are, uh, but it just may look differently. Another way that I think, uh, when trying to figure out how this uh, this theory would apply in other places, right, in the U.S. context, it's a two party system, where um, you know first past the post. There's not kind of this more uh, multi party system. Where um, in a multi party system, you may have the competition may be a little different. The strategic considerations of legislators may a little be a little different. Um, The public's concern about issues may be different right so like in the us there is no party that represents like lower income people in the same way that you have working class parties and multi-party systems and so um that could change kind of who they feel should be responsible for their issues or legislators and in, in times of in terms of like um how much concern they have about their re-election uh, depending on kind of the who the group is that's protesting and, and whether that influences their re-election concerns uh so generally i would say yes i think the the theory has broad applicability but um, more specifically i'm less confident and, and and leave it up to experts in other contexts to, to apply it in those places
2: fair enough i have one final question for you lagina and and that is um just what are you working on next? I mean, where next for you after this um, magnificent project? Um, are you working on similar things? Are you working very different things? Where are you going with this intellectually?
0: Yeah, I think um, I have various, I guess, spinoff projects that are um, kind of related but not directly tied to this one. So I'm working on one paper right now with um, Manisha Orwara, thinking about... Um, new social movements and the way that uh, people are relating themselves to, to different social movements. So uh, we're, we're, we're using the case of the 2020 Black Lives Matter protests, 2020 Floyd protests, and trying to talk about how, um, although most of the people who are participating did say that they believe in Black Lives Matter, there are about 20, 18 to 20% of people who participated with the, the Black Lives Matter movement who said that they didn't support it and how this is very much related um, to other movements, right? Women's, movement, women's March movements that are involved in the US where a lot of them participated because they didn't like Trump and not necessarily because they agreed with all of the, the, the goals of the women's movement and how um, just we need to kind of pay more attention to what it means to say that like, who's participating in the movement and what that means for uh, mm-hmm. the policy goals that a movement could have or the ways that uh, legislators respond Um, with policy to different movements, right? Um, One of the interests I had in that paper was watching or like seeing all of this happen in 2020 and then kind of a shift when um, many Black Lives Matter activists are talking about defund the police. And um, there were criticisms of that, you know, that phrase or that policy goal because people were saying that it was losing a lot of people who the Black Lives Matter movement had gained in 2020 And my intuition was that it wasn't losing those people, but they would have never been kind of committed to any Black Lives Matter policy goal because a lot of them didn't believe in their goals to begin with. And this paper shows that, right? Um, They protested with the Black Lives Matter movement because they believed in human rights, but not necessarily uh, civil rights for Black people. Or they believed in inequality, but they didn't believe that there was inequality that directly targeted Black people or... um, They didn't believe in kind of um, like racism that existed for uh, for black people. Right. And so because of that, they would never support any goal that directly targeted like improving the situation of the black population. Um, So that project is really exciting for me and hopefully will be under review and published somewhere soon.
2: That sounds absolutely tremendous, and I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, Lajina, thank you so, so much for speaking with me. Uh, the book, everyone, is The Advantage of Disadvantage, Costly Protest and Political Representation for Marginalised Groups. It's absolutely brilliant. Do go and read it. Lajina, thank you so much for being on the show.
0: Thank you for having me. This has been great.